0: The first reading is from Philippians 2, verses 1 to 11. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfishness, ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each, of you, um, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to be used to his own advantage, rather that he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made human in being made human likeness, and being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself, and becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name. That at, the na- that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Uh, the second reading is from Matthew, chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. When the Son of Man, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels are with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates his sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or need, uh, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we seek, uh, sorry, when did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of at least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, "Depart from me, you who are cursed, into a ter- into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did nothing. Uh, so and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me." They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for at least one of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to the eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Thanks, Pete.
1: Good morning, family. How are we today? Looking all very well. Uh, Great to have you. If you're new with us, um, welcome. Great to have you. Uh, My name is Pete. I'm the pastor here at Inner West. Um, I need to start uh, this morning before we uh, look at the Bible and hear from God's Word um, with something a little bit more sad. To start with, Um, as you heard from Pamela, we are part of the broader St. Jude's body, which is a church made up of several different congregations. Uh, One of those congregations meets at Errol Street Primary up in North Melbourne, Um, and uh, Ross Green is the pastor there. And Ross's wife, Jenny, has been sick for a very long time and and sadly um, died last night at around 8.30. Um, this, is, this is kind of not a shock she had been coming for a while It was quite bad cancer And she'd been in palliative care And we knew it was some days or weeks Before it happened And it did happen last night uh, So I thought it would be right and proper That we um, uh, remember Jenny today And we also pray for her family For Ross and the others which is, Because it's a really sad and difficult time um, So why don't you bow your heads And we'll pray together Gracious Heavenly Father We thank you that we know the gospel, that Jesus Christ came, was born as a human, lived as one of us, died a real death, and yet wonderfully and gloriously rose again. We thank you that those who believe in him know that they will not perish but have everlasting life. And we thank you that Jenny Green believed that to the depths of her heart. We thank you, Lord, that... We know that she is with Jesus right now in a wonderful place without pain, without fear, without tears. And yet those of us who are left behind for just a little while, even though we know we will see her again, we still grieve. And it's right that we do because we know that even Jesus grieved deeply at the tomb of Lazarus, even though he would be raised again in, in mere moments later. Death is a horrible thing, Father, and it still hurts us. And so, Father, we pray Uh, for the Green family, for Ross in particular as her husband. We pray, Lord, that you will be the God of all comfort for them, that you will be with them in their grief, that you will give them a peace which passes all understanding, and that you will guard their hearts and minds in that peace. We pray, Lord, that even as they grieve, uh, that they will be filled with hope. We thank you that they can grieve with hope because we know that Jesus Christ died and rose again, and they do as well. And so be with them, Lord, and be with our whole church, Lord, as we process through this time, um, and as we prepare for the funeral, as we prepare to remember Jenny's life, and look forward to seeing her again. And we pray this in, gra- in, the, in the gracious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as uh, Tim said, we are going through a series on gospel identity. Who are we? Who do we think we are? What does the Bible say about who we are? Last week, we looked at family. We are sons and daughters. We've been adopted into God's family. Today, we look at servants. What does it mean that we are servants? Uh, when I was training at Ridley College uh, for to uh, go into ministry, um, I had to do a, a particular unit called leadership and management. You say, why would a pastor have to do that? Well, actually, it takes some management and leadership to run a church, funnily enough. Uh, the class always st- sticks with me because of one thing that one of the lecturers said. In one of the classes, he said this, Every place you go, you'll find that there is a social ladder. Or what he called a pecking order. What happens in a pecking order? Well, the strongest, the most charismatic, the most talented people rise to the top and the weakest and the lowest achieving on the bottom. And people, when they come into this pecking order, whether it's in a workplace or uh, some other network, they, what they do is they immediately try and figure out exactly where they fit. Now, the problem with this is that it's actually really hard to do because what happens is people tend to see themselves as rather better than, the people, uh, than other people when, when, when they compare themselves. They tend to overplay other people's negative characteristics and, and um, also overplay their own positive ones. They just want to know for sure who is above them in the pecking order and who is below them. This is what this guy is saying. Now, why would someone want to do that? Well, remember how last week we looked at at two questions that we ask ourselves to help form our identity. Where do we belong and why are we valuable? These are two key questions. So let's apply them here. In a pecking order, where do I belong? Well, I belong in my spot in the ladder. I am below some people, that's okay, and I am above other people. So I get some security from knowing where my place is. Okay, so that's where I belong. What makes me valuable? Well, my value comes from feeling superior to the people who are below me and my ability to move up closer to the people who are above me. Now, all of you are thinking, I never do that. Well, have a think about it. When was the last time you went into a workplace, a new job, and you met a whole bunch of people, what do we do? We automatically compare ourselves. We want to know who's the top dog, and who's maybe not so much. What's the problem? Well, there's a, a deep problem with this, and the problem is that what happens is our identity starts being formed around social status. When we feel like we're on the rise up the pecking order, we'll feel great, top of the world, absolutely wonderful. Everything is right in the universe, <laughs> But when we lose position, when something happens to lose some of that status and start moving downwards, what happens? We feel crushed. And not only that, we find ourselves constantly looking down at those who are below us and filled with jealousy for those who are above. Now, this is not the kind of life that we are created for. We're not created to play this kind of social identity game. Well, what kind of life are we made for? Well, the Bible says that God has created us to be servants. As Christians, we are not just family together, sons and daughters, but we are a family of servants. And now to dig d- deeper into this, we're going to look at three things. I'm going to look at the basis of servanthood, the goal of servanthood, and the focus of servanthood. Okay? The basis. The goal and the focus. Uh, in ancient times, there was a huge divide between classes.? Okay? You know how in, in modern day we have the, the upper class, the rich, we have the lower classes, the poor, and we have the middle class, you know, the, the kind of people who sit in the middle. Well, in ancient times, that class didn't exist. There was a huge disparity between those who were very, very rich and those who were very, very poor. Huge disparity. Um, and right at the bottom of the social classes, the, the pecking order of the day, was the slave class, the servants. Uh, even be- below the, the free people who did kind of menial jobs, the peasants were the, the slaves. And they were at the bottom because um, they weren't just menial workers. They actually didn't even have their own freedom. They actually had, were second-class citizens. They belonged... Entirely to their master, so this give, putting that kind of ancient culture in, the, in our in our minds, when we read the words of Paul in Philippians two, they should leave us uncomfortable. in fact they would have left the people who first heard them in the days of Paul very very uncomfortable and here's why Philippians two verse six Jesus Being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. And the Greek word for servant there, let's not mistake it, is slave. Jesus made himself nothing, made himself a slave. Now in ancient times, gods were defined not by their weakness, of course not, we were defined by their power. Think of Zeus or Thor, you know, the mighty lightning gods. You know, that's, that's why people want to worship gods not because they're weak, but because they're strong. No one wants to worship a slave god. And yet here is Jesus, the, the foundation of the Christian faith, the Son of God, King of Heaven, is a slave, a servant. And to make things worse, it's not as if he's forced into this role. Do you see the wording in Philippians? He chose to become a slave. He chose it freely. Jesus lives out the opposite of the pecking order. Instead of seeking to move himself up to the top, as many of us would, he gave up his place at the very top to come to the very bottom. He becomes a servant. And he says as much in Mark 10.45, Jesus says, Even the Son of Man, talking of himself, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' job description as a servant was not simply to wait on others either. He's not simply just come to do good things for other people. He came to lay down his life for their sake. Now, what's that got to do with us? Well, I mentioned the Gospel of Mark. Um, in that context of that verse, verse 45, um, Jesus' disciples, well, two of them particularly, have just been arguing about who's going to be the, the, the top guy in, in the new kingdom that Jesus was going to bring about. Who's going to be his 2 see on his right-hand side? Well, Jesus' response is fascinating. Uh, he turns their preconceptions on their head. He says in verse 43, Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. He completely upturns the classic conceptions of their day and our day that the last will be first and the first will be last. Many people, when they first become a Christian, find it really difficult in the first few years. And this is why, I think, at least part of the reason why, because it means a drastic change in life's priorities. Your whole life you've been taught by everybody in society that greatness is about being first. It's about being the best. And now you find out that Jesus says that true greatness comes in being a servant. Now, of course, Jesus does not ask us to do anything that he himself is not prepared to do and prepared to do to a far greater extent than we'll ever have to. Jesus saw his whole life as an act of service and actually even now, resurrected and ascended back to the Father, he still lives to serve his people. He mediates between us and God. He is our intercessor. He sends the Holy Spirit, his spirit, to live in us and help us. He continues to be a servant even now. And so if you're a disciple of Jesus, you have to see your life in the same way. This is the basis of our servant identity. Jesus took on our identity as humans to serve us in his death. And now in him, we take on his identity as servants, called, down to, called to lay down our lives for his sake and for the sake of others. As servants of Christ, we look to serve wherever He wants, whenever He wants, to whoever He wants, and however He wants. We do this because Christ is our King and because we've been become His subjects. The Bible actually says that you're always a slave to something. The difference is, what are you a slave to? The Bible says you're slaves to sin and that leads to death and destruction and being crushed but if you're slaves to God, that leaves life and freedom. And that's the life that we are called to, to be servants of Christ. And to do it willingly, not begrudgingly. Because the motivation that powers this, the basis of our servanthood is not that we might gain for ourselves fame, but because Christ himself gave up everything to serve us. That's the basis of our servanthood. Secondly, the goal of our servanthood, what's it all about, what's it for? Uh, in Matthew 25, we just heard read out by Cat very wonderfully, uh, we, see that we, we receive this wonderful glimpse of the future. Well, it's wonderful, but it's also terrifying at the same time. Well, it's, it's a picture of the last day when Jesus returns and sets himself up visibly as king of the world not only king but judge. He, he gathers everyone who's ever lived in front of him and he starts to separate them into two groups. The picture given is that of a shepherd sorting through his flock between the sheep and the goats. I was a bit confused by this illustration. Why does Jesus say that? Well, um, the point one commentator makes is that sheep and goats look basically the same from a distance. They're both white and furry. But it's only when you come up really close that you see that even though they look the same, actually they're different species altogether. And sheep, on one hand, are more valuable because you can shear them and get milk from them, while goats are less valuable. All you can do is get milk. So sheep are the better of the two. So the image is clear here. The sheep that are sorted are the righteous, those who believed in Jesus, who have been washed clean by his blood, while the goats are the unrighteous those who refused to believe and those who willingly stayed enslaved to sin. So we have these two groups in front of the throne and Jesus then addresses each group. First, to the righteous, the sheep. He says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. To the righteous, then to the unrighteous, the goats, he says, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. (laughs) What's funny then is that both groups are kind of surprised by this. Looking at Jesus going, what are you talking about, Jesus? You've clearly got us confused with some other humanity (laughs) that's not here right now. What are you talking about? We... The righteous say, Jesus, we never did any of these things for you. I mean, most of us didn't even know you as a human when you were living on earth. We didn't even know you, so what are you talking about? The righteous, the unrighteous are just as surprised. They go, but Jesus, when did we not do these things for you? So Jesus replies, first to the righteous, he says, Whenever you fed, clothed, and befriended, the least of these, my brothers and sisters, at the same time you did those things for me. And to the unrighteous, whenever you didn't do those things for the least among you, you also refused to do them for me. It is on this basis that judgment is pronounced, the righteous to everlasting joy and the unrighteous to everlasting torment, along with all other evil. It's a hard and confusing passage to read, isn't it? Uh, And and if anyone ever thought that Jesus didn't believe in hell, then they just have to read this one. It's very clear that he did. Well, What's going on? Well, here we have two groups judged on the basis of the identity out of which they lived. Think about the the second group, the unrighteous. Uh, Jesus' judgment is surprising here because we assume... Uh, that amongst this group of people were people who did good deeds. The, the the good guys, the the philanthropists, the people who gave to charity, the people who lived moral lives, they, they are among this group. So why were they judged so harshly? Well, as is always the case, it's about what's in the heart. What happens if we probe deep into what people hope to achieve from living good lives? What happens if we peel back the external action and look deeply into the heart? Well, we find three secret motivations for morality. Uh, The first is guilt. Guilt's a powerful motivator, right? Guilt is what we feel when when, uh, we're aware that there are others around us who are not so well off, and we have an inkling that we should help them and yet we know that we often don't, and so we feel guilty about it. And so sometimes to make those feelings go away, then we'll do something token to, to make sure that we feel like we have done something. So we go and, and sign up to a charity, or we give something, or we, um, uh, or we do some other social good. Just basically so that we can get away from this, uh, this constant feeling of guilt. So that's the first one. The first is guilt. The second is pride. We know that philanthropy, doing good things, is a great way to move yourself up the pecking order. (laughs) Because the more you give, A, the more you can look down on those people who are doing less than you, but also the more you can feel, uh, you can receive the praise of those who are the same or above you. And people go, wow, you're so generous. Wow, I wish I could be more like you. Wow, that's please, and we want to invite you have the place of honor at our gala charity ball. <laughs> and so we're filled with pride. And the third reason is fear. You can think, you know, if I don't keep up this act, if I don't keep being moral, being the good person, and others will eventually think less of me. What happens if they find out the deep secret inside that I am totally insecure and maybe not such a good person? <laughs> So I have to do more and more, I have to serve more and more, I have to give more and more so that I can maintain my security and my identity as the good person, as the moral person. Now just in case you think I'm being too harsh, I can easily see how I've been all three. (laughs) Probably just in the last week. (laughs) Maybe you can as well. Before the judgment throne of Christ, secret heart attitudes are revealed for all to see. And some, even those known as being good and moral people, are find that they are full of pride and arrogance and fear and self-serving. Now that's the unrighteous. The lives of the righteous are also put on display, not just their external acts but the heart that comes behind them. And here are lives that are very different at the core, because the righteous served not just because um, they wanted to but because they were compelled to serving for them was an automatic extension of their lives in fact they were so unthinking about themselves that when their deeds were revealed by jesus they didn't even didn't even realize that they'd done something that mattered so much they're surprised at the at the way that their lives had turned out they're full of deep humility because they thought of themselves less and of others more and they were so full of love for God that that love overflowed out of their hearts into how they lived and how they cared. We see that a difference between the righteous and the unrighteous was not actually the action of their lives. They're not judged based on, uh, solely on their deeds. That would just be works righteousness, which is completely anti the Christian gospel. No, they were judged on the basis that one group had had their hearts transformed by the power of the gospel, trusting in Jesus for their salvation. And so they received their reward to be with Jesus forever. But the other group lived according, ultimately, to their own desires. Even if sometimes overlaying them with external morality, their reward then is to be found still guilty of sin because they chased their own desires, they chased their own good. Not God's. And so they get their reward to be found guilty and condemned to eternal punishment. Why does Jesus put this in such harsh terms? Like it's really harsh, isn't it? It's hard to listen to. Well, I think it's because a God centered identity as a servant is absolutely integral to being a Christian. So much so that if you don't have one, if you are not a servant, then you have to ask yourself some really hard questions. It truly is a matter of life and death. And so when all there's a true goal of servanthood is revealed, the only goal that brings purity to hearts and casts out guilt, fear, and pride is to understand that we are servants because God has designed us to serve Him and because He first served us so that we could do so, not with an attitude of self-seeking and self-service, but an attitude of love and a desire to worship the God who saved us. So, we've seen the basis of our servanthood, which is Jesus' service as a human in his death and resurrection. We've seen the goal of of service is, is not to serve self, but to serve God and worship him finally. And I'll finish with this, the focus of our servanthood. Now, some of you are asking a very, very important question. With all this talk of servants, how come he hasn't done an illustration from Downton Abbey yet? Never fear. Now is the time. <laughs> Downton Abbey, right, is like the best illustration for this <laughs> because it's a perfect metaphor for the pecking order. It's, lit- it's geographical. Literally, the wealthy and the rich and the nice people all live upstairs. They're on the top. And the servants, the poor, the maids and the butlers, all live downstairs, <laughs> literally. Upstairs is luxurious and wonderful and opulent, and downstairs is rough and hard. Upstairs life is easy, and downstairs life is difficult. Think about how the gospel contrasts this. Jesus, the royal master of the world, leaves his home upstairs to come downstairs. And he does it to serve not those who are naturally above him or with him, but he does it to serve those who are below him. He comes to serve the least. This is the idea that carries through to how we see our our identity as servants. Because Jesus served those who were unworthy and unimportant. And we have to do the same. If we go back to Matthew 25, we see um, what Jesus says that truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Remember, the pecking order says, despise those who are below you and envy those who are above. The gospel says, if you want to be great, get down on your knees and care for those who are the lowest and the least. But what exactly does Jesus mean here, the least of these brothers and sisters, he says? Well, actually, this is a term that Jesus only ever uses for his disciples. So the least of these means actually the members of the church family. It means that as family, we're not just connected relationally in deep friendship, but we're, we're, we're called to serve each other sacrificially. But Jesus identifies a subgroup within the church family, and that is those who are the weakest and the most unimportant. Now, why is this? Why does he go for for those particularly? Well, it's not so hard, actually, to serve those who are kind of like you. It's not so hard to serve them, because actually those are the people who will most likely be able to repay you, either in friendship or in kind. But it's hard, it's very difficult to serve the least and the less, because it means serving without any expectation that you will get something back in return. And we see how this worked out in the New Testament church. Uh, The groups who are identified as a focus for serving are the widows and the orphans. Have you ever seen that before? Who are the widows? Well, these are people in those days, and and today as well, I guess, uh, who have no husband. But in those days, it's a terrible predicament to be in because husbands were the people who were able to provide for you and protect you and give you security. Widows had none of those things, no benefits. And orphans, those who are um, with no parents, provide a stable upbringing. Again, no welfare system. So in our day, the specific people may change, they may remain the same, but the categories are the same. We're not only to serve our peer group and friends, but to pay special attention to the fringe and to the margins. In fact, you know, the Apostle James wrote that a sign, if, if you want to know someone who's, or if, you, if you want to know if your faith is dead, if it's just kind of not there, it's when you res- refuse to serve your Christian brothers and sisters. James says that's a sign of dead faith. Should we then somehow only serve the really needy and, and no one else? Well, no, of course not. But there's an order of priority. Our, our service begins with the least. Before it gets to those who have more. Now, so far, okay, this might also sound really exclusive in another way. Are we only to serve other Christians? No, of course not. Christianity isn't just an in club where we care for each other and no one else. No, of course not. We need to look at the whole of Scripture, not just this verse. Jesus said we're to love our neighbour as ourselves. Who's our neighbour? It's anyone you come across. To love them in the same way you love yourself. And even to love our enemies. We're not just to serve those in the church, but those outside as well. And in fact, this is one of the primary ways that we get to show the gospel to others who don't know it yet. By how we serve them unthinkingly as Christ served us. So why does Jesus focus in on the church family in our verse in Matthew 25? Well, friends, if, if we can't serve our own church family, what are the chances that we're going to serve anyone else? I'd say fairly limited. The church actually is our training ground for the greater mission to serve the least and the less of our society, the stranger, the migrant, the poor, the lost. Okay, I'll finish with this. How do we respond? Well, imagine if we lived out all of life out of this identity of servant. How would it change our lives? How would it change our daily rhythms? How would it change where you go each day? How would it change your work, your finances, your time, your relationships? Mightn't we find that some of the things that we thought were so important before actually don't seem so important anymore? Would our lives suddenly contain much more margin for others? Would we have more room in our budgets to give, more time in our day to help? Would we begin to see needs in our neighborhood and in our community that we've never even seen before? Or maybe God, uh, maybe right now what's happening is the Holy Spirit might be prompting you about this. Maybe He's showing you a way to serve that you've been avoiding or perhaps just haven't thought of yet maybe showing you how to serve in all areas of your life. Or maybe God is convicting you right now that you've served out of a wrong motivation. Maybe the, the words are today are like arrows to your heart saying you've served out of pride or out of fear or out of guilt. You need to repent and and, and uh, say sorry to God that you've chased um, self-serving instead of God-serving. Maybe you need to ask the hardest question of all, is being a servant integral to my identity? Is a life of loving service flowing automatically out of the abundance of the love Jesus has shown me? Do I believe in the gospel? And finally, it may be that you are completely overwhelmed right now. There is so much need and you are only one person. Maybe you feel crushed by the weight of all that needs to be done. Perhaps you're already burnt out because you've worked so hard to serve others. Or perhaps you're too afraid to even live out your servant identity because you're afraid of burnout. You're, you, you, the need is just so intimidating, you feel paralyzed in your seat. If that's you, then there's something you need to know. A true gospel identity never crushes you. It is always something you can rest in. I'll say it again. A true gospel identity never crushes you, it always provides rest. We all need to know that the job of Jesus, the true and better servant, is already taken. It's already taken. You didn't have to fill it. He is the one true servant of the world. We are just his helpers. The ultimate responsibility rests on His shoulders, which are strong enough to bear the whole world. Even the results of our serving are in His control. Do you have to serve absolutely everyone? No, because Jesus is. But you can do what you can. We serve a Master who died to forgive us for all the ways that we fail to serve Him and His people. And when we forget this, we'll be swamped with all sorts of negative emotions. But when we believe and trust in this truth, we will serve with cheerfulness and joy and strength. And you know what else? We'll sleep well every night, knowing that Christ is King and He is great enough to meet every need. He's great enough to meet our needs. He's great enough to meet those out there as well. The core in our lives is simple obedience to serve as He served us and to rest in the grace that has been given to us. So, family, let's be servants and live out that identity and let's pray. Father, we thank you that Christ came not to be served, even though that was His due as King of the universe, but to serve. To serve a lost and broken humanity. And he did so even to the extent of giving his own life. I thank you that he rose again, calling others to faith in him, to feel the benefit of that service, to live new lives, to be saved, and to be given a glorious hope of eternal life. And Lord, thank you that you graciously invite us into the same identity that Jesus has, to be servants as He is a servant, to serve the least of these. Father, help us to live out that identity as individuals and as a church, and help us, Lord, to work hard at it and to be cheerful and to be full of joy, and yet help us also to rest in the grace of the gospel that Jesus is the one true servant, and he has and his job has already taken. Help us not to feel guilty. Help us not to be filled with fear. Help us not to be chasing pride. To move up the pecking order, but help us to be humble and to know that we can only do what we can do in the strength that you've given us. Help us to live that sort of life. And help us to worship you. Help us. To, uh, may our lives be sacrifices of worship for your holy name. And I pray this in the name of Christ the one and true servant. Amen.